Steph, hello. It's been back. a while. It has been a while. Bird Talks is back with the second season. We're back. We're continuing. We're moving forward. Uh, oh, it's so nice to be back. I'm really thrilled with this season. We've got um, five incredible interviews that we'll be sharing over the coming months. And uh, our first one, which we'll be sharing today, is with Magda Walter. A fellow Mags. Oh, I, I know. You know what? That didn't really even register with me. There, there's, <laughs> there's so few of us. And yet I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, two Mags in this episode. I was listening to this and I, I found it super interesting. She has had what an amazing career and an incredible life. She's traveled, she's lived overseas. Um, I thought, I mean, there were so many inspiring points. I loved what she was talking about, about picking up your life and moving, which we've both done that multiple times and the sort of huge fear of that change, but still being able to push forward and it gets less scary the more you do it and just moving ahead despite sort of the crushing fear of leaving everything behind. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know the feeling. Oh gosh, don't even get me started. Um, the one thing that uh, she has done, which I haven't done, I think you have, um, moving somewhere with uh, where people speak a different language, but yes. Magda spent some time in Hong Kong and just her observations as a minority. And it's so, I think, valuable having that, experiencing that perspective in life because I think few of us have that opportunity, you know, especially in the Western world, predominantly um, dominated by white people, white culture. So to be able to experience the other side of things, I think is just so enriching um, and influences probably her point of view on life. Yeah, the idea of sort of being a little bit uncomfortable every day which I know a lot of people experience, but it really just like brings it to the surface. And she also speaks about, you know, her choice not to have children and where that leaves her now um, in her life and how she's essentially filling her time by giving back in a really meaningful way. I thought it was super inspiring. The idea of being able to start something completely new at any point in your life is always a favorite thing of mine to listen to. Like the idea that nothing is forever you can make change you can decide to do something else and and do it it's just very comforting to hear <laughs> yeah and this idea of like constantly learning like a life full of learning it never stops i mean magda had a what, 30 40 year career and is she you know semi-retired she still consults on the side she's uh, you know constantly learning new things um volunteering right now at yeah. helpline to domestic abuse helpline um which you're pointing to as her giving back so yeah it's really cool to see somebody that's just like constantly putting themselves out there and exposing themselves to new experiences and new knowledge yeah it's she's got a lot of sort of she's a practical lady in the best sense i think it's it's a really interesting interview yeah, she also has some really interesting opinions about what the future holds for us. It's not, it's, it's pretty grim. <laughs> it's grim, yeah. I mean, it's the stuff that no one wants to admit, but she, she's... But we're all secretly about. thinking it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, really excited to share this first interview of the new series. Uh, before we do that, though, I do want to mention uh, our partner, Ritual Vitamins, which is awesome uh, to have them on board with us for this season. 
um, say a few things about them, but I know you've used ritual vitamins. Yes, I like have used it for a long time. And I mean, I'm not, I try to be healthy, but I mean, you've seen, I'm sipping on an energy drink as we do this. Um, so it's nice to know that I'm actually getting the good stuff that I need every day. And for years I was unable to take multivitamins because they would just make me sick. Like I would just vomit them back up within 30 minutes, which is Ew. gross and not practical. And this is the only vitamin I can take that does not do that. Yeah, it's a miracle. It, it's amazing. I, w I actually had the same experience when I was taking them where not only are they refreshing with their sort of peppermint infusion. Yeah, it's not like you're not burping up like fish oil. Yes, there, and there is no fish oil in there. They're vegan. Yeah. Um, but as I learned, the, the reason that you can eat them uh, any time of day, whether you've eaten or not, is that they're like slow release. So it, they actually, um, your stomach, your, your body absorbs them in the small intestine, not in the stomach. Uh, so that's why you can eat it on an empty stomach because it, it's not going to be like infused there. So I thought that was super interesting. And yeah, that fish oil thing. And the, oh, I also so learned that's a thing. People have the sort of burps from it's vitamins. Disgusting. It's disgusting. And they just arrive at my door and especially during these, you know, COVID times, it's nice to just have it delivered and I don't have to go out and get it. Yeah. And unless something's being delivered, I probably won't get it. So it works. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. I, I never want to go into a store again. Um, sadly relying back on the internet for yeah. every, everything, but yeah, the subscription is so easy to start and you can snooze it. It's only a dollar a day. Uh, no strings attached. Um, one thing to note, though, is that they don't uh, ship internationally just yet. So for all our US listeners, take full advantage. Um, for our international listeners, um, stay tuned. Hopefully, you know, yeah. one day you can get one to your door. Um, but if you are interested in getting these nutrients um, with our bird sort of discount code for the first three months, you're going to get 10% off. And and to access that, just head over to ritual.com slash bird. Yes, that is ritual.com forward slash bird. Get on there now. Start your subscription. You literally have nothing to lose. You don't even have to leave your house to get it. So I want to start with, I've done a little bit of research on you, and I want to summarize a few things uh, before I ask you a question. You know, some of your pro professional uh, experiences include working for the World Bank, working for NBC News in Moscow, working for CNBC in Asia, also working for CNN. Uh, you've lived in London, Hong Kong, Paris, Moscow, Atlanta, New York, Warsaw. You also speak English, Polish, Russian, and French. This is just a little bit of a summary um, of some of the stuff you've done. But with that, I wanted to ask you, what is your quick little spiel when somebody's like, oh, hi, Magda, you know, who are you? Where, where are you from? There is no quick answer. <laughs> usually, I usually ask people how much time they have because, <laughs> because I'm one of those people, you know, in, in a time when everybody's debating identity, I, I'm not quite sure who I am anymore. You know, who I am, I mean, I don't mean it in a confused sense of, oh, who am I? I, I mean it in the sense that I, um, I feel I, I belong to a lot of places and a lot of people and a lot of identities and... Um, 
I was really quite offended when Theresa May, British Prime Minister, during the whole Brexit debacle in this country, said this very memorable thing that a citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. And I like to think that I am a citizen of the world, but I'm a citizen of everywhere. So, but it does have its downsides because you don't have, um, uh, you know, a lot of history in one single place. Or I, I, I had some of my friends over for a New Year's drinks party, um, and I had some of my best friends in London in one room, and people I'd known for at least 20 years, most of them. But I was realizing that there are people who've lived somewhere for decades and have, you know, three times as many good friends in one place because they've been hanging out with the same people. For but years. do they? See, I feel like I've experienced similar. Like, I've lived in a lot of places for short periods of time, um, but I've made good friends in those. And as you were talking, it made me think, well, does it matter if I don't have a long history in some way? Because at the end of the day, it's the people in my life that kind of tell my story and I share with them. And having them come visit me in London from New York and other places from the past is really amazing. And then the flip side of that is I go back to places like say Montreal, where I have a lot of family and friends who are born or raised there, who I, you know, I'm like, oh, do you still hang out with so-and-so? I probably haven't seen them since you were here. And it's like, I think there's this perception that just because you're in the same city, you, you do hang out all the time. That's not necessarily true. What drew you to that travel? Was it through the work or was it kind of, well, there's a sort of hand in hand that you always had this desire to kind of move around and journalism was kind of facilitated that? You know, when I was growing up in Poland in, in communist days, it, was, um, it wasn't that easy to travel, right? So people uh, could only leave the country if they had some, uh, could demonstrate they had some currency, foreign currency, to, 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 to maintain them while they were away. And also usually you had to get an invitation from a relative or a friend that they will give you housing and um, cover any emergency expenses. So, so first of all, that was a sort of forbidden fruit. It wasn't quite as easy to travel as it is these days. The other thing was that um, even though it wasn't easy to travel, my mother was an adventurer and she would go on uh, within the constraints of what was allowed and all the per per paperwork that she needed to fill out, would go on these crazy trips with her girlfriends by car, camping out in Spain or whatever. So she was already, so there was something in the blood. My father, on the other hand, who was a journalist but also later became a, a mm, international uh, authors' rights executive in an international authors' rights organization, got to travel a lot because of his work to journalism conferences, to uh, various meetings of this of this. So 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 my father was forever traveling, and I was a little jealous of that. So I I sort of had that urge uh, for a long time, but in my adult life, I think the traveling was something else too. It was a certain restlessness of not really wanting to settle down in one place or curiosity about what's, what's out there. The f fact is that what I was doing is I wasn't really, you know, uh, as some people do, as I think you've done, uh, setting aside a year to travel the world. I was basically moving myself, my life, my furniture, my cat, to go to another place, sometimes another continent, as I went to America when I was very young to get married. And then I went to Asia when I was changing jobs from CNN to CNBC Asia. 
Um, and those are pretty massive decisions, especially when, when you're older and especially when you're established in the place you're leaving because you've got friends, sometimes there's a relationship, uh, which was the toughest at one point, and, and, and it's an established job. And what you're doing is you're basically approaching yourself and it's quite scary. I know how that feels. You know, it does. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but the lesson in that is, and I often tell people, especially younger women, when I'm having a conversation with them about decisions they're facing and struggling with, is um, it's normal to be afraid of that change, but the more often you make it, the more comfortable it feels. I don't know if you can recognize that. Yeah, definitely. That as well. You know, you sort of, you know, it's there. Yeah. And it's not, if it isn't there, there may be something wrong. But but when it happens, um, you know, you know, this too shall pass basically, and you'll be you'll be okay. Definitely, I feel that's something that um, became really true for me once I moved to LA, which already had been a good few moves at that point. I had lived in London, Montreal, New York and LA but yeah there was this the initial feeling the, this that you recognize of fear when you first get somewhere new but then knowing like the, the few things I need to do to be able to get into a routine quickly and become familiar with places that allowed me to transition really easily and then obviously we've moved to London which for me is moving back to London after having not lived here for eight years or so and that was really surprising because it wasn't a big deal because I'm coming back to a place that I'm familiar with. But at the same time, I'm moving from one culture to another culture, but I'm also kind of stepping into this weird past that's familiar, but it's also different. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think it does get easier. The only thing that I hate about it is just the logistics and the finance of it. And the packing and the yeah. unpacking and the, the, the yeah, that's, that's tough and stressful. And, but it's funny you should say about returning to London because, you see, I was here as a child between the age of five and nine. My father was posted to the embassy as a press counsellor. And um, this is where I started going to school, and this is how I became bilingual, even though I sound more American, I suppose, than British these days. Then for years and decades, when people used to ask me questions of the kind of, like, where would you be, where would you like, if you could be anywhere you want, it was always London. And to go back to your earlier question, when I was in America, which was a sort of natural um, move, you know, my husband was studying in, in, in the States and, and I joined him here. Um, so that was natural and I wasn't so scared then. I was young and it was all very exciting and I was running away from Poland, running away as in, you know, leaving whatever there was. I wasn't so even worried about leaving friends because a lot of my friends had emigrated by then. But then I moved from America to Hong Kong, which was the first big move, followed by many others. And, of course, it was a huge move to go to Asia from a job, an established job that I had at CNN. And um, sometimes you lose your train of thought and you don't know what you were <laughs> to say. <laughs> so much going on. Well, uh, the biggest change, was it a cultural change as well that was difficult? No, you know, I, I think the cultural thing was not... I think that the scary bit was leaving one job, but I, I was leaving for another job. No, I only realized what a massive cultural shift it was after I got there and living there and how, how different things were and how differently people approach work and relationships and food <laughs> and uh, passion of mine. <laughs> well, and even identity. And, and of course it was 
shouldn't have been, but it was a shock about how really unpopular British people and anybody associated with them, so Europeans and English-speaking people, so Americans by extension, were by virtue of the whole colonial history, um, were in Hong Kong. And it was interesting to be in an ethnic minority as well. There were many lessons from that. Whether you were liked or disliked, you were nevertheless a minority. What were some takeaways from that experience? Well, the most obvious was, um, you know, when you were the object of discrimination, even if it was quite subtle. I mean, there would be instances where I'd see bus drivers not stopping. In, in, in Hong Kong, they have these little minibuses as public transport, among other things, wonderful subway system and everything. But um, there were also these minibuses running around town, especially the hilly bits and so forth, which is much easier for them to traverse than, um, than big buses. And sometimes they would just not stop for me, just like that. And I think it was some kind of aggression that people felt grievance that was just being manifested to anybody of European descent, basically. But a funny thing happened, actually. I mean, it's a minor, minor mi micro story, but I found out that um, Hong Kong, like many big cities, uh, has a certain roughness about it, a certain toughness, a sort of hard outer, outer skin. Um, um, but then when you scratch or when you somehow get under that. You see how kind and, and sweet people can be. And I experienced that in an odd moment because it was um, just a few months before the handover when, when Hong Kong was going back to China. Uh, I lived there for that historic time, which was quite amazing. And my mother had a, a dreadful accident in Poland. She, she fell out of a window or out mm. of a balcony and, and survived. But Jeez. it was pretty touch and go at some point. Um, it was a very low balcony, obviously, but, but, and, and my mother was not demented or anything, so we still don't know. My brother always wondered how that ever happened. Mm. But I got the news about a week before Hong Kong handover, and I was working for a television network that was making massive preparations for the cover of it. And I obviously got on a plane and went home with everything, leaving everything behind. My bosses were very understanding. Uh, but I was able to come back. Everything seemed to have stabilized, and I was able to get back a day or two before the handover. And I was probably in a pretty fragile and vulnerable state that, state that somehow um, uh, communicated itself uh, without words, you know, to strangers even. Because all of a sudden, people were incredibly warm and kind and uh, accommodating. And it was just a very interesting observation. And I wasn't sure... I, I tried to find out... I tried to figure out why it was. And I was... Am I not just projecting the usual toughness? And therefore, their, their sort of defenses go down as well, or, or they're much more opening. Because I, I was in this place, I was scared for my mother's life. Or is it because they were becoming masters in their own home? Mm. Which, of course, is very ironic, given what's happening in Hong Kong today. But at that time, they were thought they were, you know, the, the, the colonizers were leaving and the Chinese were moving in. A lot, a lot of people feared it anyway, but, uh, but it was more, I don't know. So with that in mind, though, how do you bring that into your work as a journalist where, you know, I'm always curious about 
what does that mean to be a journalist? What does that mean to you? Well, I, first of all, I'm not a journalist anymore. But, uh, you know, I haven't really worked in a newsroom for almost 20 years. But so you sort of have a, a, a mindset that stays with you. And actually, when I moved, when I moved from um, NBC in Moscow, where I was bureau chief, which was sort of the most senior job that I had in television journalism and broadcast news, to work for the World Bank as their European head of media relations, um, so that meant being on the other side. Mm. So that meant selling the story to my fellow journalists that I was working alongside just a few months earlier. I was quite uncomfortable with that. I, I was never, never very comfortable with the... A lot of journalists make the transition and it seems very easy for them. I, I just never really liked... Well, I didn't like the World Bank. I don't like big international bureaucracies. Very bad for my pocketbook, because I could have made a career there and, and made loads, shitloads of money, forgive my, my profanity, but, um, and nice pensions and everything, but I just don't function very well in an environment like that. Um, but, but the idea of, you know, spinning a story, of, of uh, shaping the truth, of then marketing and packaging it in a way that suits this media organization or that media because that's really what good media relations is it's mm. not like just banging away the same story i mean it's all very different now with digital very sort of um it's a whole different world and a different skill and and we could go on forever about how uh, how dangerous what 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 these sort of many truths um are now in, in, in the way people receive information. But, but back to the days when I made that transition, which was about 20 years ago, first of all, it is, like I say, it is a mindset. It is a sort of a, a, a default, if you will. I always joke that you have to be a bit rebellious, you have to question authority, you have to be pretty direct, you have to be clever at uh, finding stories and then uh, getting people to tell you these stories so you have to listen. So obviously a talker like me sometimes gets stuck in talking rather than listening, but I have learned to listen over the years. But I think it's the challenging authority part that is important. So then when you become a corporate person, a suit, and you're sort of giving somebody the spin, uh, well, to a lot of us it doesn't come easily. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a transition that I worked in. And then shortly after, a few years later, I sort of refashioned myself yet, yet again, which is sort of the theme of my life as well, is that I, yes, my, my center of gravity is in journalism, and I've always sort of moved around journalism even since I left active journalism. But I've taken on different iterations of that media related career path. So so I was a, a, a news producer for most of my first 20 years. And then I was a PR person, a senior PR person at two large international organizations. But then when I went into independent consulting, um, which I've been doing for almost 20 years now, I became a journalism trainer. I became a... Um, a communication strategist, which is a bit different from PR in the sense that you do develop a way of positioning yourself. That was more interesting, more challenging, and it didn't involve sort of 
uh, framing a story vis-a-vis -vis journalists. It was more internal about who you are and how you want to speak to the world as an organization, mostly not as an individual. And then I became a, a media researcher, not researching stuff myself, but leading research projects or editing research projects. In some cases, I was an activist, although that's sort of not the hat that I wear all the time, but I did some lobbying and some advocacy for various media policies as part of research projects that I was involved in and still am. So 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 I sort of made these different these transitions but still sort of staying in the media mm -hmm. universe. And I don't think I could leave it, although nowadays I work as a volunteer for and think of doing it for a living um, as a volunteer for um, a helpline for victims or survivors, as we say, of domestic violence. Mm. It's a completely different world. You know? How did you get into that? Well, I'm, I'm semi-retired, if you will, and um, I wanted to slow down. I worked very, very hard for many, many years, and it was very intense and sometimes uh, to the point of madness. You know, I don't mean madness as in going completely bonkers and off the rails, but suffering in, in terms of my mental health. Um, so I very consciously said, I'm not like a lot of people who say, I don't know what I'll do with my retirement. I'm happy to work less. I, I can do a little bit here and there, but not that much. Um, and, but I still want to do something useful. And especially given that when you reach retirement, you're usually enjoying your grandchildren or children's adult children, or, you know, you give more to your family. And I don't really have that family to give to, this younger family version, and I want to be useful and live for somebody other than myself. So I knew that I wanted to volunteer. And then this refuge thing sort of just popped up at, at me when in an article I was reading. I was reading about a benefit or some fashion event or something that was supposed to be helping refuge, and I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. So I'll find out, and I went to their website, and they were recruiting volunteers, and, and I applied. It's very rigorous recruitment for volunteers, even, and a very rigorous training for five full days with legal and psychological and whatnot, and clearance, you know, police clearance. Mm. And for, for, it's, a, it's an amazing organization and does amazing work. It can be pretty stressful, but I don't do it all the time. Mm. So there are a lot of amazing women in that room who volunteer their time as well. So that's a wonderful experience to be part of that family. Yeah. Do you feel like it, it, that's the kind of that piece that you're looking for? Well, it, it does because there are moments when I feel I've never felt more wanted and more meaningful in all the things I've done in my life than I do when I'm in that room. And I get on the phone with a complete stranger who's in terrible distress and needs help whether, you know, whether it's leaving immediately because they're in danger or planning to leave or coping with the situation she's in. And, and the, the idea that Refuge has is um, you don't tell people what to do. Mm. You give them the options. Again, it's, you know, I don't like to use these buzzwords, but it is about empowerment. So it's not about you do this because that's, oh, you know. The, my colleagues on the helpline, whether they're staff or volunteers with lots of experience, because some women have been doing this for years, and that's part of what we do, is to explain the dynamics of domestic abuse. So when you hear about the partner of this woman 
behaving in a controlling way, even if it isn't physical violence, but, you know, coercive control that we hear about so much now, and it's an offense in this country, um, the sort of high level of control where you control women's movements and their relationships with their family and their friends and their money and their work and what they wear and all these horrible things that happen. So I hear my colleagues talk about this um, to the women who call, explaining you're not the only one who's experiencing it. So, so, so there is a hint of maybe sometimes of advice, but... Um, it's like education or awareness. Yeah, yeah. awareness, really. The yeah. thing is that I'm a novice again after being seasoned and experienced and mentoring and whatever, all of a sudden I need help or I feel I've got a lot to learn. And that is kind of an interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah, yes. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, I sort of feel the same way going doing my master's now, where like, oh my God, here I am reading textbooks again and writing essays and uh, how do you structure them? And yeah, that fear of inadequacy. Inadequacy, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like, I'm curious, I guess, your point of view. So for me doing my master's here now in my mid-30s, there's this balance of, obviously, I'm trying really hard and doing my best, but then the other part of me is like, well, you know, I know it's going to be at least at a good standard by nature because that's just how I work. But at the same time, like, I'm not going to break my back for this. Like, it, my career doesn't depend on passing. So it's it's kind of a nice balance to do it at this age where... I'm doing new things, it's out of my comfort zone. And you know yourself much better. Yeah. So, so, so this way you can not, you can allow yourself not to freak out about it because it's not the end of the world. I, I, I did actually something similar um, because I, um, after my first two, three jobs in television, after about, that took about seven years, those two jobs, I decided, because I wanted to make a big leap career-wise into um, national politics in America, and actually, I had a goal. I wanted to move to Washington, to work in Washington. Um, I decided to do a mid-career fellowship. So I was in my mid-30s, I think 36, so about your age, when I um, applied for a mid-career fellowship in journalism and got myself another degree because I had one, I had a degree in Mediterranean archaeology from Poland, which obviously didn't... It's a bit different. <laughs> so much use in my career. Uh, um, but then I took this year master's program for mid-career journalists and used it as a stepping stone. I didn't move to Washington after that. I moved to CNN, but it was a big... Um, move up in, in terms of a national, international network from local stations and whatever. A uh, chance to what I felt, I felt who am I competing against in making the move I want to make? And I thought to myself, I'm mostly competing against Americans who grew up in this country, in this education system. They took things like civics and they know the constitution because it's part of their schooling and, and the political system and whatever. And these are the older things that I really should catch up on. So I took a lot of courses that interested me and found fascinating on anything from the practical sides of campaign politics, which was, it was a election, presidential election year. So it also allowed me as a journalist to, um, to work on a political campaign, which one would never do as a journalist, because you're not, you're supposed to be impartial. Um, so, so I was a volunteer on the Michael Dukakis, anybody remembers him, uh, presidential campaign in, in Ohio, where the university was. 
um, and also things like a fascinating course in, the, in American di diplomacy in the 20th century. So, you know, all these things, foreign policy, international affairs, American politics, which I was always obsessed with to this day. Um, it just gave me this ear to, A, reflect on what's important, what my chances are, who am I, where my opportunities lie, or do I want to do something else? It, it was a very good year. made a couple of, well, one friendship that's endured. Well, so what about through that lens of politics and, you know, having lived in all these different places with different jobs that do focus on politics, um, which I think is really interesting. Well, where are your thoughts now? It's the beginning of 2020. You know, how are you feeling with what's to come ahead in the next decade? Oh, what a big question. I know. Are you terrified? Because I'm terrified. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified too. I'm really terrified, you know, and, and I ask myself, and it's good to hear that a younger person has this feeling too, because I sometimes think, oh, well, it's just... You know, me at my age, just, just thinking that whatever's happening in the world today, you know, is just decline, which is a normal thing for somebody in later years to be thinking, I think, generally. Um, but it, but it is it, it, it's really terrifying because, you know, when I moved from Poland to um, America in the 70s, I was just so bowled over by the freedom and the discourse and the freedom of speech and... And, and the, you know, the usual thing that people get um, overwhelmed by in America, which was the, the opportunities and anything's possible and blah, blah, blah. But I was, I, I came there in 74. By 76, they were in a political campaign. Jimmy Carter was running for president. And I was just like, it was my, you know, I was binging on the political campaign and how it all took twists and turns and the campaigning and the conversation and, and the media um, being well. To make a long story short, it was like it was like the the, the gold standard. And now you look at the decline and some of the things that are happening in the states, not just because of the outrages by by President Trump. I, I shouldn't even call him that. I find it's normalizing him too much by saying those two words together. But I um, everything. I mean the whole the whole decadence of it, of the political system, of, of freedom of speech, of um, integrity in politics. It's all, and not just there, here where we live in the UK, in Poland where I was born and your parents were born. And, you know, it's just like, well, I suppose it's easier for me to say what I'm going to say because I'm so much older and I don't have kids. So that's another part of it. But I have to be terribly um, pessimistic and terribly cynical about it and say, this is the way, and I, I hope I'm wrong, <laughs> um, this is the human race, um, this is the path to extinction that this particular species is sort of consciously taking, because that's what it is, really. Um, it won't happen in my lifetime, probably not in yours, but... Um, uh, I think some of the alarms are maybe a little too alarming, even despite the, some of the horrible climate uh, events that, that are happening and have been happening with great intensity over the past year. There is a little bit of hope of maybe slowing it down because um, it has become very much at the top of the debate in a lot of places and a lot of political places and, um, and, and also very much on the conscience of 
uh, individuals, certainly in Western countries, you, you know, it's hard to say what's happening in developing countries, but in the wealthy countries, people are buying less, people are doing little things to anything from conserving water to recycling to flying less. I know people, I mean, that's a pretty hard um, decision to make is, oh, well, I'll travel less because I care about the planet. And I actually do have uh, personal close friends who say we, we try not to. Hmm. Uh, so there are people doing things. I don't know how much, how long it's going to be before governments. The reason I say we're sort of on a slow path to extinction is because, unfortunately, greed and money are never going to be part something that the majority of people will abandon. So um, you so, think the majority? Sorry, you think it's the majority? Unfortunately, I, I'm afraid it is. Yeah, and it's um, um, and it's the the, the way that corporations rule the world, uh, I hate to sound like this anarchist and revolutionary because I'm usually much more measured in what I say, but you ask the question. Um, I find, uh, you know, here coming from a communist country, a person who embraced capitalism in all its glory for so long, I now find myself talking like an anarchist and anti-globalist, and I, I'm horrified by by the hold that corporates have over everything that happens in our lives and in the world. Uh, not enough to become a crusader. Maybe I'm just, you know, a bit tired and not terrified if I had teenagers today. I would be horrified that something horrible is going to go you know, happen to them as a result of all these things that they're exposed to, whether it's porn, whether it's drugs, whether it's self-harm, whether it's the image thing, you know, it's just, I mean, young women injecting their faces to look better on Instagram, I mean. But hasn't there always been something like this? Is there really, has, you know? there has, but it's just to, and again, you know, maybe it's a question of somebody of a, of a generation, two generations removed, who, who just said, oh, it didn't happen in my time. Of course it happened, all these insecurities, all these teenage angst, and, and whatever, but um, and bullying and, and all that stuff was happening. And I don't think we had as much teenage suicide on average as we do today, you know, or, or self-harm. I don't... But it's also interesting, you know, I talked to my parents, uh, like you said, grew up in Poland as well, about what, what was depression like, you know, alcoholism, like, you know, that stuff wasn't labeled and, it, and it I think not de dealt with. And it was, uh, you know, it was definitely a culture of well, you just kind of get on with things. We, get, we don't talk about it, we get on with it. So Some of it still prevents. Right. I and mean, it, there's much more. Well, it's hard, so it's hard to say there was less of it because people don't or, talk about it. We don't just... Or uh, child abuse. Right. Or, you know, um, predators yeah. Yeah. and whatever. So I feel like, yeah, so kind of going back to what we were, said, we were talking about earlier with, like, climate change, and obviously, you know, climate change is just one thing in my head where it's like, yeah, any, any point in history... There's a million reasons and a million things going on that are terrible and negative. That you're afraid of exposing yeah. your children to. Well, you know, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a good way of, you know, looking at it on the flip side is, you know, life goes on and maybe we are not doomed, as yeah, I right. like to say on a, on a dark January afternoon. Um, and maybe humanity has started doing, I'd say that big humanity thing, but... Uh, there is growing awareness and we can still reverse things. It's hard to say because nothing like that has happened to the world. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. It's like the, the amount of change that has happened in recent decades is unprecedented. 
So just through technology and all of that stuff, it's hard to say. But I do want to ask you one question around the children thing and looking back on your life, like, is that something that you think about or regret or happy with the decision? Yes and no. <laughs> I, again, it depends on the day, but there are days when I really envy my fellow grandparents hanging out with their little, you know, and I, which must be sometimes a bit of a, a burden, you know, where, where young working parents in, 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 in high-flying jobs, I, I see that in my own family, rely on the grandparents to hang out with their children or pick them up from school or do grandparent duty, but I think of the joys of, you know, interacting with little ones um, or with your adult children, having those relationships, you know, so I don't really miss, you know, not having changed diapers or had sleepless nights when, when children are babies, but I, I do miss this interaction with, I know so many kids of my friends who have turned out to be these wonderful, beautiful people, you know, beautiful, not necessarily externally, but just generally beautiful people. So, and, and, and I have a lot of relationships with them. So that's also helps me, um, in my, you know, in my own, um, status is that I have a lot of young friends and actually that keeps me young in a way, mentally young and whatever. So, so that's, that's great. So I'm sort of a big sister to a lot of my friends' children. Uh, on the other hand, so I have these moments of regret, but then I try to sort of change them into moments of appreciating um, what I was possible, to, what was possible to achieve in my life. And I, I couldn't have done all this moving around and changing jobs and risking things and risking then ultimately um, not being able to support myself when I went freelance. Uh, you know, if I if I had children, because that would have come first and. Maybe I would have stayed on a mar in a marriage that wasn't working out um, because of that. I, I mean, I was, I'm on very good terms now with my ex-husband, and um, but um, that wasn't an option. I, I could see that wasn't going to work, so so that was one of the reasons I didn't end up having kids. You know, when I'm in the regretting mode, I will remember the conversation I had with an old woman from my family's, my husband's family, visited me when we were living there in Florida once, and she was childless, and she was, well, well I shouldn't say old woman, because she was probably my age in her 60s then. <laughs> but she said to me, um, my marriage was young then, and she said, look, yeah, you may not have want to have children now, but you'll regret it when you're older. And I know what she was talking about, because one does. But you know what? I mean, there are many... I know it's hard, and I know you probably go back and forth about it, but it's, um, it, it's, it's knowing what you want rather than other people telling you what you want. So, so, and, and, and society has changed to a point where it's not, given the different shapes and forms of families that we see or lives or, you know, roads that people choose. There is no one single desired and acceptable way of doing it so I think that's the but you know that so then I, I think the, we're going to kind of wrap it up um and I have one last question which is is there a piece of advice that you've been given in your lifetime or maybe something that stands out to you that maybe you share with others that you like to share whatever that may be well, the bit that I told you about making change and being afraid of change and then understanding that that's natural and it gets easier every time is, is something I do often repeat to people. 
And uh, the other, uh, the, the, the thing, a very minor, minor thing that happened to change, um, it wasn't overnight, but, but made me aware of things. I, I was quite self-conscious and not terribly confident in my, say, early 20s and my striving for to move up in my career. And I remember I went for an informal, it wasn't actual job that I was interviewing for, but I lived and worked in Florida television and I went to New York because somebody was, was going to introduce me to some senior executive at one of the TV networks. And while I was waiting, it's really phenomenal how much a pep talk can do instantly and then how it can stay with you. And I was waiting to meet with this guy. I knew so much about foreign affairs for 20, whatever, three-year-old, 24-year-old. I mean, no, maybe I was a bit older, but still in my 20s. Um, and so much to share and so much to talk about, and, and yet I was feeling terribly self-conscious and scared and, and, and inadequate, and it was all very impressive, these NBC, CBS headquarters and all these cosmopolitan people working there in CBS News and whatever. And this one woman, this administrative person in, uh, in, in the outer office where I was working, she said to me, because I, I chatted with them, and at some point I walked into a filing cabinet and I said sorry to the filing cabinet. <laughs> And she said, why do you do that? Come on, girl. I mean, and she was the kind of sort of brash New Yorker that you meet all the time. She was like, stop being sorry about these things and why are you apologizing? And you know, and when you go in there, you give it to him, girl, you know? And she was like, tell him how good you are and tell him what you know and show the truth. And, and it was just this thing. And I mean, the woman's probably long dead. I mean, this happened 40 years ago, but it was like transformed me. I walked in there. And I talked to the senior executive, senior vice president for foreign news or somebody like that, like I was his peer. And, and he, that was one moment and one sort of thing that, that punched my confidence up. But, but that's, that conversation stayed with me. I sometimes have ideas of these projects of maybe writing a book about women that changed my life in very small ways, you know. And this, this woman stands out and sort of just saying, you go, girl. Um, but then the other thing is always to, and, and, and I don't know if you're going to edit this out because of the profanity, but I always <laughs> said to women, you have to have a fuck you fund, meaning you can leave a job or a man and have enough money so you're not going to end up on the street, you know, in a, in a month. So, so build that, you know, whether you have a wonderful relationship or not, have your own bank account just so you can do that. And I think that has enabled me to make these leaps because I had a bit of a financial cushion in case things didn't work out. So, so yeah, that's the thing that's been enduring in my conversations with, with mostly other women. Really. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good note to end on. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Are you allowed to use words like that? Yeah, of course. We can do what we want. Oh, good.